This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're on the forced march at the end of an anonymous donor's rifle. We read feces on the syncretic society by the Romanian dissident Pavel Campanu under the pen name Felipe Garcia Casals from 1980. We go down the ultimate 20th century rabbit hole. What does it mean to say these attempts at socialism were premature? We're going to be talking about probably the most fucked up Stalinist state and a uh, analysis made by someone who actually knew Ceausescu of Romania, uh, Pavel Campanu, the theses on the syncretic society. He actually wrote a whole book called From Leninist Revolution, the Stalinist Dictatorship. That is, uh, I, I really want to get my hands on. But basically, uh, this guy met Ceausescu in like 1941. He was a member of the underground Romanian Communist Party and fought against the Nazis and the fascists. And I, so he actually, you know, was an inside man on all this stuff. And that's why he published it under a pseudonym, possibly. Also, because Romania was batshit crazy about censorship. Like, I actually um, <laughs> watched a documentary today about Romania that was really insane. I thought that this was a really good work of Marxism. And I was very impressed with what he had to say here. This uh, was a not one step back request from an anonymous donor. Uh, that gave us money like I don't know, two and a half months ago. So thanks for waiting, comrade. Um, this was super interesting. Yes, we're actually being paid for this one. Donald and I have been going back and forth recently about you know the value of Althusser and structural Marxism, and I think this is a really good exemplar of where like you can convey some interesting ideas with structural Marxism, especially drawing off of like the early stuff before they abandon all their concepts, but also whatever like is interesting here has a thick layer of, you know, crypto dialectical wizardry on top of it. And um, we're going to try to, you know, sink our teeth into this baby for you. He's actually kind of seems to be making like a general theory of like Stalinism more so than just Romania. But, you know, I guess Romania is what he was most familiar with. So I guess we'll be, again, that was the most, like, harsh, like, you know, traditionalist, nationalistic. So, like, you know, they were of a state in the Eastern Bloc. They actually started out relatively liberal, but then Ceausescu visited North Korea and saw the kind of uh, monarchistic form of government they had and decided to mimic it in his own society. And he took out a bunch of loans in order to, like, create these lavish palaces and stuff. And essentially paid back the loans through austerity on his own people, which basically led to him being the one guy who got murdered <laughs> when the Eastern Bloc fell. There was all this like propaganda made of him like alongside the great Romanian kings and queens. And these he just like created this whole like Kim Il-sung style uh, cult of personality. 
So there's a, a lot of similarity between Romania and the DPRK. And abortion was banned. This is another really fucked up thing. Like they basically banned abortion, and they would give women gynecological exams like every month just to make sure they weren't like getting abortion secretly, even though there was like an underground like abortion. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. It was it was really fucked up. Like they were the one like uh, Eastern Bloc state that like completely banned abortion. Basically, they had this almost like literally like the way they like tried to enforce the family and reproduction remind me of the Nazis. In like 2007, there was like a famous uh, Romanian film called Four Months, Three Weeks, Two Days about like a woman who like tries to get an abortion during that period. And uh, it's a pretty fucking intense movie. <laughs> yeah. And what's ironic is there was recently a book that came out, which is about uh, women's economic independence under uh, the Eastern Bloc. And basically the argument is, is that, you know, women had a lot more economic independence and were therefore less likely to stay in abusive relationships. But the one exception was Romania. Like, they had an ultra-patriarchal, like, traditionalist kind of society. And, and Campanu gets at this in his analysis, too. Um, there's another uh, great documentary, Comrade Detective, where blue jeans are a kind of like symbol of Western capitalist decadence. And that points to another one of these illiberal parts of uh, Romania. Yeah, that was part of Ceausescu's, what he called his cultural revolution. He wanted to have a cultural revolution, but his idea of cultural revolution was basically clamping down on Western decadence. So yeah, like blue jeans were banned and stuff like that. And he based off the Soviet Union as like revisionist because they had like fashion and stuff like that and pop music and there's also a crazy story about this uh, band in Romania called Phoenix, and they were like kind of like a psychedelic rock band, but they were only allowed to play music if it was traditional Romanian music. So they basically combined their weird prog rock with traditional Romanian music and invented like a whole new genre. It was and it's pretty awesome stuff. But uh, <laughs> they ended up having to leave the country because they were under so much persecution. Like secret police would be at the concert and like make sure that people only clapped to show their adoration for the music. Like this, this was you know the most repressive Stalinist society. So that really has a big in- influence on kind of his view here of what he calls the syncretic society and. Uh, also, premature socialism. Can we get into what he means by syncretic society, by premature socialism? So this relates to the classical historical materialist theory of the forces and the relations of production, and that production yeah. relations suit the productive forces in a certain way. And when Gramsci called the October Revolution a revolution against Das Kapital, I guess what he was trying to get at is that the attempts of Leninism was to kind of like skip a step. And in retrospect, we know that that was going to play out without capitalist productive forces. Having to build these forces creates a problem. Anti-capitalist industrialization, as he calls it, can be easily conflated with the concept of socialism, trying to build an alternative to capitalism. I mean, it's, it's an old song if you've been listening to our podcast, but it's expressed in quite cryptic wizardry. Yeah, he says it straight up. He he actually uses the classic uh, Marx formulation about forces and relations. He says, basically, according to Marx, the forces of production grow to a certain level to where the relations of production are no longer suitable for those forces production, where 
and premature socialism, the uh, relations of production are not appropriate for the productive forces. And so the contradiction is actually like in the opposite way, where you have this attempt to create socialized property forms, but they aren't able to actually create socialized property forms. So it's not capitalist, but it's not socialist either. It's kind of this weird form of anti-capitalist industrialism that is a syncretic form of multiple different more modes of production kind of articulating with each other, which is where the Althusser Balavar influence comes from. Yeah, and not only capitalist uh, market relations in terms of selling, but not in terms of buying. Buying labor yeah. power is prohibited, and the state kind of enforces an absence of the ability for a bourgeois class to form. But that leaves a vacuum, and that vacuum is kind of similar to what Rudolf Barrow is getting at, is that that vacuum is filled with what Marx might call all the old shit all the pre-capitalist forms of class come to fill the void yeah. in a way. And there's a sort of triangulation between this supposedly socialist like state form, this, you know, egalitarian socialist state form, um, this capitalist market economy, like our attempt at a, a capitalist economy that has only half a labor market. And then these social forms of, anti-capitalism that were in fact reactionary more or less you know that pointed back to what he would call feudalism what we might call tributary yeah uh, modes of production and the idea being is he even questions whether mode of production really fits the syncretic society yeah because he, he says they don't form a whole they don't form like a totality they're all in opposition to each other and so the state has to kind of patch it all together and to do that, it uses this extremely arbitrary form of repression, which is what we see in Stalinism, is this really arbitrary, almost irrational kind of repression. And so, um, I, I guess the way this would relate to Althusser and Balabar is their whole theory of modes of production, is that there is no, like, the mode of production is like an ideal abstract concept, and that there are, what exists are social formations which are basically a combination of different modes of production, but there's no such thing as the mode of production in its pure ideal sense. Like the mode of production is a kind of like ideal, like, you know, law of motion that you determine by analyzing the concrete capitalist system. And that's what Marx is doing in Capital. So Althusser and Balabar are basically saying that there's this kind of gap between the mode of production and then the actual social formation. And so Westward Campianu is kind of getting this idea of a, uh, a syncretic society. There's not one mode of production, but multiple ones. Does it not form like a totality? It's not a, it's not a consistent thing. He's describing an irrational system, basically. It's not exactly an irrational system. It's a system of three competing logics that are mutually incomprehensible, but they're all in tension. And that by itself doesn't say to me that he thinks it's unstable. You know, he might think that this forms some kind of harmony, but I don't think that that's really what I he's mean, getting. This here. seems to sort of like rhyme with Tickton's concept of a non-mode yeah. of production. Essentially, the Soviet exactly. Union one particular mode of production it was a series of attempts at different things mm -hmm. so for example during the nep you could describe it as state capitalism 
which Lenin did, state capitalism as controlled by a dictatorship of the proletariat. Under Stalin, it was more or less this industrialized tributary mode. I, I don't know how the fuck it's like, you describe It's like that. tributary industrialism. The point is, is like you can't have anti-capitalist industrialization and socialism. The two like don't work. Socialization and industrialization are just two processes with different historical logic. Because industrialization is based off the looting of the peasantry through primitive accumulation. And uh, he kind of talks about this in here, how basically, and because they can't buy labor power, the only way they can accumulate is at the cost of, uh, of basically over-exploiting the peasantry and agriculture. And so... Essentially, what you have is this weird tributary mode of production that tries to extract surplus from labor, but can't because labor isn't a commodity, and so they extract surplus in the absolute rather than relative way. It even mirrors Ticton in that way. But I think he's a bit more optimistic than Ticton. I think Ticton is like, there's only one way this shit can end. Are you kidding me? where yeah. uh, there's a little more hope here. Because the state is really socialist for him. He really thinks that that's sort of like a deformed worker state or something like this. Or I, I don't even know how I would phrase it. Because it's a premature socialist formation, that there's a really socialist, egalitarian structure to the state that's real and not just ideology. Although what I really love about this is that he maintains the negative sense of ideology. He uses theory as a positive to ideology's negative. Yeah, he, which is just he refreshing. Says that the state intervenes in the economy, and that you need to have state intervention in the economy, obviously. But he kind of says that this. It kind of reminds me of the Bukharin Stalin debates or the Bukharin Trotsky Stalin debates, because he's basically saying that listen, the level of forces of production that we have in this society do not call for the amount of attempted socialization that we've attempted and so therefore the kind of socialization that comes out of this is basically just this bureaucratic state industrialization and if you just try to too voluntaristically go against scarcity what happens is that scarcity reasserts itself in a more kind of direct way yeah there's this historically unprecedented distribution of scarcity that he talks about which i think is itself based off of a marx quote about generalized want and it's also, there's also a Sovietologist who is Hungarian who described the economy as like a uh, scarcity economy. And he kind of says that if you, we understand capitalist uh, economy in terms of money, but the Soviet economy is like understood in terms of scarcity. And he's kind of a neoliberal, but I mean, it's still an interesting you know, way to think about it. You know? Well, neoliberals think of scarcity as a universal condition. Like, that, that's actually yeah, sort of but weird to make is, it exceptional. Well, the thing is, is that there is real scarcity in the Soviet bloc, though. Like, they don't have access to the whole world division of labor. And especially in Romania, because Romania was, like, you know, more autarkic. They, they kind of wanted to be more independent. And, you know, they actually, what's funny is... Shizhescu, before he went in his North Korea-style phase, gave a middle finger to the Soviet bloc for invading Czechoslovakia. Yeah, that's it's really weird, because it's not what you would expect from him. Like, you'd expect him to be like, yeah, send the tanks, kill those fuckers. But no, he actually, like, gave a big speech about how it was wrong and how the Soviets were revisionist and stuff. 
And then, in 1971, is when he visited North Korea, and then saw, oh, fuck, like, I can become really powerful, and really, like, you know, become, like, a, uh, basically, you know, have a really nepotistic, almost monarchist, like, um, system based off of this socialist, like, uh, base. It's, it's really crazy, because he started out as, like, a more reformist, uh, even, like, liberal, democratic, uh, Eastern Bloc leader. I just can't help but compare it to Ticton, almost, like, I, I sort of had a hard time reading it because of the fucking Altusarian wizard language, which was kind of annoying. Most of the interesting concepts are already brought out by Ticton. doesn't go into the specific historical details of the Soviet Union as much as, like, Ticton does. You know, Ticton could at least give you some, like, details on, like, you know, how production would work in USSR. Yeah. No specific Filzer. factory lack. Donald Filzer is, like, really good at giving you the picture of how the shit worked on the ground. Whereas this is definitely more in the realm of the abstract. It's almost like what, because what Marx is kind of trying to do with capitalism is develop an abstract version of capitalism where there's only capitalists and workers to figure out the true ideal laws of motion of capitalism. And it's almost like this is like an attempt to make like an abstraction of uh, actually existing socialism or whatever to try to figure out what its ideal form is. Right. What Marx was doing was a model of capitalism, and what this is trying to do, I guess, is a model of the syncretic society. Yeah, but then it suggests that you can't really model it because it's syncretic, so it's kind of like, you can abstract from it, but it's not a coherent system. So... Yeah, it's a social formation that exists in a specific point in history. And in fact, it's interesting where he says um, there's exceptions, and he names Czechoslovakia and the GDR, German Democratic Republic, where he says that the um, the kind of scarcity indicator isn't as much of a factor, which is really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. That's something I've thought about before. You know, if, if it's purely productive forces, which is obviously not, then it, this shouldn't have been a problem in uh, the, the DDR and Czechoslovakia as much. Actually, I always thought of it in terms of the DDR, never in Czechoslovakia, but it so follows. Well, after the Prague Spring, like, they actually did get a bunch of reforms in Czechoslovakia, apparently. And, um, yeah, I guess there is a sort of character to the DDR that you, that is maybe more progressive than other places. Also, most developed police state, like, <laughs> most Foucauldian place. The question I would have would be, like, you know, like, how long does a society have to exist for it to be, like, a functional mode of production? You know? Like, what, 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 what makes a society a functional mode of production? How can you say that it's, I mean, if it's reproducing itself, isn't it a mode of production? I mean, I don't know. So like human lifespan doesn't count as <laughs> it's in the grand scheme of history. I mean, this is a totally ad hoc criteria. Yeah, that's okay? the thing. Is, but, I mean, it's like, not a bad one. <laughs> for Althusser, who influences, there's a difference between a social formation and a mode of production. And he's saying that, like, this doesn't count as a real mode of production because you can't, like, abstract, like, an ideal laws of motion and a class structure from it. But there is a kind of class structure, but it's a class structure composed of, like, elements of different modes of production. Isn't any system in transition going to be, like, somewhat syncretic and ad hoc? Like, at, like at what point did capitalism become capitalism, you know? Any transition towards socialism, there will be this kind of heterogeneous 
aspect to it, but he says that in this case, there isn't a transition to socialism happening because basically it's premature socialism, that the ability for the workers to actually socially control property is blocked by this political force that enforces industrialization. So because it reminds me of what Vukarin So says, were the Mensheviks right? What was that? Were the Mensheviks right? Or should they just have not, like, seized power and waited for... <laughs> See, I think that they were wrong. Historical materialism. You have to expect revolution to begin in the periphery. Like, that's just reality. The point is, is that, you know, the idea of permanent revolution is, you know, based on the idea of global revolution. So if you're expecting, like, socialism in one country, then I guess, yeah, the Mensheviks are right. But given the level of the division of labor and how much stuff is produced around the world that people expect, I don't think even that is possible. Like you, ha- it's world revolution or nothing. Like there's really no other option. You have to revolutionize like a large chunk of the world at once, sure. But um, I think you still have that problem. Like I do think that the Mensheviks have a point. It's a basic Marxian point, um, and it's kind of painfully borne out by you know the way the Leninist regime is starved. I understand that you know there's more like revolutionary potential in a, in a periphery. It seems. Like, that makes intuitive sense, but it seems like a problem if that's the only place that a revolution can spark or take. Yeah, because if that's true, like, we're basically fucked now. We're fucked. No, why Why can't a revolution in the periphery spark a revolution in the core? Like, why is that not a possibility? Well, what is it about the periphery that makes it more amenable to being revolutionary? Well, because you have um more of an accumulation of contradictions. You have... Combine an uneven development. That's a bunch of gobbledygook. Basically, you have often like anti-democratic regimes that don't have the same liberal structures that we have, but combined with like a strong proletariat. And more and more of production is being um, shifted to these countries, and they're also undergoing processes of proletarianization. And they're also economically like dependent on imperialism. So there's just more factors at play that fuel revolutionary action. And you can see that, like, in the level of class struggle around the world. Like, it's in places like China and Iran and uh, South Africa, where the really, like, militant and class-conscious stuff is going on. I would agree that in the Middle East, you've definitely seen activity in recent years. I I think that it's kind of myopic to think it's going to start in the core or start in the periphery. I mean, look at what's what's happening with the the yellow vests right now. Like, right. Class struggle is possible in Europe. Class struggle is possible in the Middle East. It's there's nowhere it's not possible right now. And I mean, history didn't play out this way, but we weren't far from Central European socialism. But I mean, if the problem was that that socialism was premature, I I don't know that it was it was certainly a gamble. I don't know. But But that's how this piece characterizes it. This argument kind of reminds me of one that I had with like a mouse recently on Twitter. Their critique of Trotsky in terms of like, yeah, it's actually Eurocentric because, you know, revolutions in the periphery need to have like a revolution in the core in order to back them up. And permanent revolution, just basically, you know, there has to be a revolution across the world all at once in order for, like, there to be, like, you know, socialism or whatever. Yeah, I know that critique of permanent, but the point is, 
permanent revolution is nonetheless the revolution in the periphery is what triggers the revolution in the core in the first place. So, and, and I think history has borne that out that it has been in, in the less it is. Look at the real revolutions that have happened. Like, I'm just saying, like, look at like, the real revolutions I, that have happened, Donald. Um, yeah, I mean, look, like, how, how, how do I put this? Like, the way I think the Mensheviks were right is that the success of the world revolution does depend on whether you can get one of the main imperialist hegemons or like the main manager of many productive forces, you know, of, of the top of the line. Like it does depend on how the revolution in the core goes. But the revolution in the core doesn't happen independently from the revolution in the periphery. Like the two Well, I don't agree necessarily that it has to come from the periphery, but I accept what you're saying as far as that goes. But what happened in Russia is that the gamble was, you know, on a continental revolution, really of Europe or of Asia, you know, they're just because there's a lot of resources available in Asia, they might have been able to do it on a continental basis in a more humane way. I'm I'm sort I'm like open to this potential. Like you so to be less Eurocentric about it, you know, there was a hope for the peoples of the East to take the place of the European Revolution. Um yeah, that, I mean, I mean... That, and that, that's not totally stupid. You know what I mean? But like it, it it does seem that like without being able to have the people of like within an imperial hegemon or just within like a fairly technologically developed society, like be able to like attack their own, you know, like class well, structure about it and like undermine this. it, then like the whole global situation isn't really gonna soften. But think about it like this. The third world has more and more of the proletariat and also with climate change. And just the creation of this huge multinational global marketplace we have, immigration is going to be at massive scales. And every country has the proletariat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The point is, is that like there's the kind of, you know, differentiations between core and periphery are becoming less and less about producer nations versus peasant nations, but more like nations that live off of finance capital and in nations that, you know, basically work for these bastions of finance capital is you know, that's a really vulgar way of putting it, but it's... Well, yeah, because the U.S. is still the second, like, most industrial producer, so you but can't, like... look at how little labor is actually put into industry because of the industry is super productive because we have access to all this technology. Like, that's why tech is such a big sector. In the so we're talking labor-intensive versus capital-intensive, right? Yeah, like, production in the third world is more labor-intensive and low and it's it's lower pay like the lowest wage country is bangladesh and so if we want to really look at the proletariat's value of labor globally we have to start from like the you know the global low like the, the of the labor market and i think that it's like something like hold on i could grab it anyway but the point is is it's it's really low i don't really buy the miseration thesis in to a certain extent like I understand being in wage labor generally, you know, you can't be like essentially, you know, like having the wealth a programmer has and be like, you're still technically wage labor. But like throughout the history of the labor movement, the most active revolutionary elements of the proletariat were relatively well off in comparison to their peers. I mean, yeah, and there's always been members of the petty bourgeois who have been well off but have contributed to the revolution. Obviously, there isn't, like, a one-to-one, like, relation to, you know, consciousness and, like, economic position. 
But what throws people into struggle... Rose is right even within the proletariat, though. Like, you know, a lot of the earliest class activity was especially skilled laborers. Yeah, but also a lot of conservatism came from those skilled laborers. Like, a lot of the ideologies we associate with the conservatism of the labor movement. I'm not saying it's the most perfect historical situation to be in, but... Yeah, maybe, maybe I should bring this back to the original context in which I brought this point up. Because um, he describes it as premature socialism. So my point is, should the Bolsheviks have waited until the means of production were developed capitalistically, when, i.e. when things aren't premature, in yes. order to seize power? And if that's the case— And that's what Bukharin's strategy was. He wanted to have the capitalist revolution in agriculture, and Stalin just wanted to, like, socialize it anyway. Well, that's not what Jake is asking. Jake's asking, was October a mistake, more no. or less? Or could you take this critique and make that argument? The challenge is to not make that argument. I think it's a much more obvious argument than anyone wants to give it credit for. No, I don't, I don't think that this means that October was a mistake. You really have to do some heavy lifting to explain if October isn't a mistake, and this it's is not true, October, that it was that premature. Was it's voluntaristic Stalinist industrialization that's a mistake, and this overly heavy-handed like arbitrary state interventionist form of planning in line with all this labor you know yeah exactly it's not communism (sighs) it's this compulsory like politically forced industrialization off the backs of the peasantry that's the problem and let's take it back to the text right the whole point of this text is that anti-capitalist industrialization can't coexist with socialism so it really does add up to you can't do this (laughs) Like, it's not a matter of the well, Bolsheviks the wrong waited too. because the Bolsheviks yeah. didn't do the revolution. The proletariat does the revolution, perhaps with inspiration from the Bolsheviks. Well, yeah, the, the proletariat pushed the Bolsheviks into making most of their most radical and often criticized, like, moves. Like, banning free press was actually done by the proletariat and approved wearily by the Bolsheviks initially. Well, but, specific places were occupied. It, all right, that's kind of pushing it. Like, the, oh, the Bolsheviks weren't like, oh, no, don't make us ban, you know. All no, the they actually parties. were. Like, they actually oh, were. no. No, no, it was. Like, Lexi, like. Oh, no. You want me to get the history book and read the passage to you? I mean, you can read it all you want. Like, I don't think that... That's a like a, a good faith reading of history that, uh, you know, we just had to, you know, ah, it sucks. Well, no, but like, it's really our only option. Like, as if it really all is the their only newspapers. option. Like, but, their program but, said free press, and the workers were like, no, we don't newspapers. think the bourgeois should be allowed to. The bourgeois, bourgeois papers. Yes, bourgeois papers. At what point does, like, a paper stop being bourgeois? Speech? You have to be kind of liberal about it. You have to, like, give people the benefit of the doubt unless they're actually advocating for the restoration of capitalism well do you think that like spontaneous mobs of workers were doing that like i don't know they like, probably, they i don't necessarily work. trust the bureaucracy to do to do it better i mean say october is a mistake is to say that the bolsheviks should have basically gone against the vanguard of the class which wasn't just their party but the entire like militant working class well, but is anybody arguing that saying, i don't i think is anyone arguing that? i'm be less sensitive about the question um really i think it's a it is a good question. I, I, there's something about the framing of was October a mistake that feels uh, antique to me. Again, here's my point, though. I'm just saying that they describe it as, like, premature socialism. So This is Romania, though. This is, like, 
Because October was meant to spark a world revolution. Romania was literally a nationalist regime of developmentalism. So is he just describing Romania or is he describing kind no. of like Eastern social? It depends how much we're talking about abstracting this out. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I think Jake is, is getting to this ain't just about Romania. This is about the whole edifice. Like this is this is a, a general theory right. of the syncretic society. That's what I thought. We that doesn't yeah. mean that it is. It, like his he even says there's exceptions, like in his own words, he right, says right, um, right. Czechoslovakia and Eastern Germany don't meet his critique. Like yeah, even but if he says this is all to like to, like, to the general says, this is, Soviet Union probably would. By saying two don't count means the rest do, Donald. So yes, in short, Jake. Okay, so where do you draw the line? When does the Soviet Union start to, to like align to this analysis? Like what years? I mean, I don't care, Donald. The point is that the whole premature socialism question is painful for, for a good reason. If we can interrogate that without saying October is a mistake, we have a pretty good analysis, yes? And so this is where it's pressured me to kind of rethink about what the Bolsheviks did in 1918. I mean, that's I mean, where it takes me. And that's and, why I'm motivated to go there. Is this question of prematurity? Like the wave of revolutions that happened had to sort of happen. I don't think capitalism would have developed in a significant way if these like revolutions did not happen. And if they had lasted longer, there could have been a possibility of transitioning from these sort of distorted modes of production into a sort of genuine transitionary mode. I feel like much of the situation that leads to sort of this chaotic non-mode of production is like a technical problem. A technical problem that's made worse by bureaucratic nonsense, but like it's a technical problem nonetheless. I think Rose is getting at something important, which is that for all this discussion about the core and the periphery, the Marxists would have had similar problems if revolution had spread to Central Europe. If we had had a continental revolution, I mean, there would have been a different situation. But I think many of the challenges faced and the problems in the conquest of politics and things of that nature, a lot of the tensions and antagonisms would have still been there. Yes, exactly. I agree. Because you still had like a petty bourgeois to deal with. You still had like, you know, just the difficulty of building socialism. Like, I don't think, like, all of, like, the thing is, like, all of the difficulties that the Bolsheviks had in building socialism, oh, yeah, a lot of them are due to, like, their backwardsness, but a lot of them are honestly, like, things that I can see a modern revolution having to deal with. And Yeah, but a modern revolution would have better tools to deal with them. Yeah, that's true. I agree. It's a and huge difference, too, though. That's huge. The like, agrarian question is different framing it in terms of like premature is like it's just a bad framework i don't think premature was really the issue the issue was imperialist encirclement like the issue was underdevelopment like it wasn't necessarily the question of prematurity right it's in a, in a broader global sense october wasn't i mean it was premature given how things worked out you could here's the thing it was a gamble premature implies that some kind of capitalist development would have happened in these nations <laughs> Right. Like historically, there's a certain degree of indeterminacy. There's a certain thing where if you roll the iron dice, things could come up one way or come up another, or who knows. The Bolsheviks ultimately gambled in October. They gambled and lost, but I think they were right to gamble. What they set up was an anti imperialist, anti capitalist form of industrialization. And in that way, it had a historical role. 
But that was a historical role in building capitalism, not socialism. And if they were for any other cause besides socialism or Marxian communism, whatever you want to call it, then all of this would work. The problem was they're supposed to be building communism, and that is what makes it premature. I guess you could say looking at the whole like geostrategic situation, yeah. But so, I mean, I guess they could have, you know, packed up their bags and went home. I mean, or... there were a number of things that needed to exist in order to fix the problems that they had that were technical in nature. I think Soviet planning would have worked relatively well if they had like computer technology. If there was a broader revolution, and as Donald said, they would have had to do some anti-capitalist industrialization in other places. This is true. But imagine that there was like, it was half pretty much like industrialized and then half like needed to be, you know, bolstered up. The industrialization that they went through might have been of a much less desperate character because it wasn't literally a national autarky. I mean, that's literally the argument that Trotsky makes. Right. And yeah. I don't think he's wrong there that, yeah, yes, right. there, there, there would have been some industrialization, but there also would have been zones of some potential actual socialism to compare anti-capitalist industrialization to, because they're not the same thing. Like there's a potential form of, you know, building productive forces that happens under dictatorship of the proletariat. But if it's done in national autarky, it takes on a desperate form and has yeah. to devour any communist hopes. It just it has to. What was Stalin always hungry for? But the thing is, like, in, the, in, in Russia, though, before the rise of the five-year plans and Stalin's revolution from above, uh, you did see uh, that kind of, like, a society that had, like, a lot of self-experimentation and utopianism and movement towards uh, socialist ideals, even if they're, you know, the thing is, is that they didn't try to, like, force society into socialism through political will by doing like you know by forcing the peasants in the collectives they tried to promote peasant co-ops and they promoted worker self-management but it wasn't this political voluntarist like form of industrialization that stalin yeah. introduced and i think that's what's being critiqued here more so than like the idea of revolution happening before capitalism's developed it's an interesting question whether we could have wound up with industrialization happening under workers control like in yeah. the grand scheme of things there's no there's no question you could not have there's absolutely no question you could not have i think that the proletariat could have been much more in command of this historical process than they were in real life yes absolutely the proletariat could have absolutely overseen industrialization here's the problem world war one what wins wars in that period and to a certain extent today industrialization industry wins wars you build a ton of shit and so if Russia was basically to sustain its autonomy, they needed to build a ton of shit and they needed to get blueprints to tell them how to build the shit because they did not have the intellectual infrastructure to design their own shit. So that's why the only thing they had was a shit ton of arable land and peasants to do it. So they expropriated the grain. Stalin basically bent over for Hitler. They signed that fucking pact. Stalin went and grabbed as many blueprints and technicians as he possibly could and prepared for World War II because that's what they had to do in that situation. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a Soviet Union post the 1940s. So, I mean, but Jake, that's like literally like every Stalin apologist like line. Like that is the reason why people like support Stalin. Like I'm not saying like, oh no, you're a Stalinist and bad or whatever. 
If no, the revolution hadn't been successful, maybe we could have had a more humane process of doing this crap. But my point is, if you don't have an imperialist core for there to be an inter-imperialist war with. Exactly. Yeah, how could this not be true? If Germany no, had a cool. communist yeah. revolution and killed Hitler, then they wouldn't have had to make so many tanks. That's like the classic Trotskyist and Leninist line, or like non-Stalinist Leninist line, though, is that the Russian revolution was ultimately defeated in Germany. Yeah. And that's the other thing, like, Stalin basically criminally mismanaged the Third International because there were other revolutionary waves going on in the world at the time outside of Germany that they could have maybe, like, seized the advantage from. And that- also other people before Stalin, like Bela Kuhn and other idiot ultra-leftists in the common turn. I don't know. This is part and parcel to the, the policy that's formed early. Like, it's it's hard to separate the logic that ends up playing out from its roots and, like— if there was maybe some kind of more, I don't know, like liberal regime that was put in, or I don't even want to say liberal, but you know Bukharin what I mean. Basically well, offers imagine radical democracy. Well, that's what Bukharin was for, though. Like, they were trying to build up, like, a civil society of proletarians from the ground up during the NEP, but Stalin banned all these organizations, basically. Yeah, by then, it was too late. Like, Why? Like, Why was it too late? Because the gamble of the revolution relies on a specific window, like oh, that when window. Did the window close? Somewhere in the somewhere in the thirties, I'd say. Yeah, the thirties. Like it wasn't until Hitler took over Germany and China was crushed. Okay, but we're not living in nineteen eighteen. We know what happened. So in reality. Yeah, what happened is there was three years of extremely harsh war communism, and then the new economic policy was introduced and stabilized things, and then there was the possibility that they could have started introducing workers' control and socializing stuff and having workers' democracy, but instead Stalin took over and unleashed his non-capitalist industrialization. As it turns out, the tightened butthole of 1918 stays tight forever and it never goes away until the whole system is demolished wait that's not wait, true what's this that's about just, wait what about buttholes like, i don't, so, I don't understand. all right butthole is my freudian way of talking you're basically about saying that war communism never ended and that there let, was not a concrete no no, no it's, in, it's worse wait, than that it's let, worse lexi, than that. let lexi finish her point about buttholes i didn't hear what she said yeah yeah thank you listen like the tight butthole authoritarianism that kicked in, I'm sorry, around 1918, once they realized an actual Soviet state isn't going to work out. That process never gets loosened up. Like, Why? People, like, According to who? It, like, where are you getting this? Descriptively. Like, like, you said yourself, Bukharin tried to do it. And in yeah, the, and he, won, he wouldn't have been able to try to do it if it was so. not loosened like, that's up. The problem. Like, you can't the mold of the regime quite early. That's Dude, how... Well, did, like, I mean, there, there was a civil war. Did they ever lift a ban on factions? Some of this stuff is before the civil war. Like, the problems with... Some of it's before October. That there was at least uh, the idea of a Soviet state through October. Once the idea of a Soviet state breaks down, the concept of an alternative democratic state to the constituent assembly, or an alternative democracy, whatever the fuck you want to call it, semi-state, blah da Like, the point is, is that to have the February uh, revolution, you're like, all right, this constituent assembly is better than the czarist government. And then to have the October revolution, you have to be like, all right, fuck this bourgeois parliament form. We need a more democratic, you know, proletarian form of governance. And they never find it. So, but, but the point is, is that after having to survive a civil war and famine, there is the historical agency where they could have, have found it. Like... But in fact, they couldn't undo the process that was wound in 1918. I mean, 
But it's just not true. That they they literally undid all kinds of things. I'm just gonna say it bluntly. It's straight up impossible to establish like a proletarian democracy in like a society that is mostly peasants. Okay, yeah, it's it's. I guess that's true, Rose. But the point is, is that like there's historical inaccuracy being peddled here, which is that there wasn't a loosening up of the state after the Civil War. Like that's just not true. Like, but it didn't really take. People saw Stalin's policies as a return to war communism. Therefore, there was something different from war communism between war communism and Stalin. Yeah, but I right. doubt Lexi disagrees that there was a yeah. liberalization within yeah. party high politics during this yeah. time. But we're still stuck in this mode of party high politics being the determinant in this way where the proletariat, like, was not engaged. But they, I mean, the point is, is that, like, it takes time to build a worker state and it takes time to to train the proletariat to become like a ruling class, like especially with so many proletarians who are just like coming out of the countryside with no education or literacy. You kind of have to take economic structure to be an, just an incredibly important determinant. Like, and one of the reasons that the Althusserians end up pivoting away from structuralism, from historical materialism, is that it is inconvenient for Leninism. You know, it it boxes Leninism in too much. It almost makes it look like it was premature. Um, and so that's why people that hold on to this productive forces, historical materialist uh, viewpoint can either become Stalinist apologists or simply think that this was really too early. And But, but this is why people turn against this in, in so many words, if not for the post-owned reason of being horrified by industrialization. The thing is, Lenin was trying to carry out a democratic revolution, and it wasn't going to be carried out by the bourgeoisie. That's the correct. concept of like it being carried out by the bourgeoisie is sort of weirdly historically anachronistic. But anyways, yeah, in the situation, yeah. it had to be carried out by a coalition of the peasant population, the sort of petty bourgeois, yeah, the permanent and the proletariat. Yeah, and I believe there's a possibility of it maintaining that coalition enough maintaining sort of worker state peasant worker alliance the schmicta or coalition state enough and going under like what bukharin's plan would be manage state capitalism at least enough so it would be a gradual so at least it would be a sort of like industrialization that wouldn't murder a shitload of people at the bare minimum Maybe it could have lasted long enough to reach the point where we get the technologies that we need for economic planning to be successful in the long term, such as, you know, computing technology and all that. And then we could have implemented some kind of like more heavily planned system, but it's all speculative. Well, I'm doing the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism, so I have to speculate about shit. Stalin did nothing wrong. He was simply fulfilling the will of history. If you don't like it, you're just jealous, just like Trotsky. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's sort of funny, though, because that's what Rudolf Barrow basically says, right? That basically uh, Stalin had to do what was inevitable to the forces of production. He was, he was like all great men. He was like Michael Corleone. He was like... Uh, he was the world spirit. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, unfortunately, like, you can't really get out of this... Um the national industrial compulsion towards primitive accumulation and development of the productive forces for capitalism. Like, 
and there is really you strong can, power. No, but no one did. But like, you can. But if you but, break with but, world capitalism. But it didn't happen. But like, it can happen. And that's why we Marx, believe in communism. Marx's theory says unless there's some kind of special thing and you're part of a big old revolution that skips something like, yeah, like capital is going to batter down every Chinese wall, he says in the manifesto. Like he really thinks in these stages and it's so like quite we, unfortunate. But that had aren't we overripe, though, for a change. Do you think that what we need is more industrialization? No, no. This is a hundred years later. I'm, it's just how relevant it is then at this point that we need more industrialization. No, no, no. It's that's not my point. My the point, point is, is like that, that's how we have to view this stuff. And the reason and, the Russian Revolution didn't do something fail, that could happen now a hundred years ago. Well, the, the reason the Russian Revolution failed was it didn't was because it didn't break with world capitalism, mm-hmm. which was a contingency on the international proletariat, not because the productive forces globally weren't developed enough. It was because they weren't able to break, actually break right. with global capitalism. They weren't able to resolve the problem of imperialist encirclement, too. I mean, which would, which is what breaking right. with global capitalism means. I mean, like overthrowing like the dominance of capitalism as uh, capitalist states in the world. Right. But right. if they had like crazy cybernetic like tank machines, imperialist encirclement wouldn't have mattered. No, yeah, if they had managed to um, build a Gundam, I think that's insane. The, 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 the bourgeoisie would also have that. That's just no, that's crazy. No, no. But if they had the advantage in productive forces instead of the bourgeoisie, they're like then sure. If they just had five Gundams. And five 15 year old by Shonen communist militants to pilot them with their conscience. I think you'd have everything you need. Vladimir, get in the robot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week. Like us on social media. Leave a five-star review on your podcatcher or consider subscribing or donating to our Patreon or PayPal. Remember that this feisty episode was requested by a donor. And you too can leave your stamp on Swampside History by going to patreon.com swampsidechats or paypal.me swampsidechats. If nothing else, come hang out with us in Discord. Oh yeah, getting closer to the big event. It's something special. Something we've had a lot of requests for. With some surprise guests. Next week, we're back where we started. Two years in the swamp. Time for reflection. Pastrazzi vacis mele curette.